NAHB power hitters. I love it. I love talking to the people. I love hearing stories from inside the engine of America's housing operations. These are good, hardworking people. Some of the smartest you'll ever meet, fighting the good fight to do deals and just make and manage housing America needs so badly. Welcome to another exciting NAHB Power Hitters. I'm your host, Linda Hoffman, coming to you from the ever-smoky San Francisco Bay Area, where smoke and lumber prices continue to rise. Today, it is my great pleasure to introduce Justin McDonald, president of the McDonald Company's third generation in this family-owned business. Family-run businesses are at the heart of American greatness. The McDonald Companies are headquartered in beautiful Kerrville, Texas, where the company owns and operates over 5,700 units across the great state of Texas. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Linda. It's great to be with you. I'd like to take a quick moment, if I can, to recognize your father, Granger, such an icon in the industry. We will long appreciate his dedication and service, including past chairman of NAHB. We were sad to hear of his passing in June. Our deepest condolences to you and your family, Justin. Please know how much Granger was admired and appreciated. Thank you. We do appreciate families like yours, the McDonald's of Kerrville, those especially dedicated to serving others, the industry, the community, you're an inspiration. You're the folks doing the heavy lifting to keep housing on track in all economies and conditions. And it's been quite a year. Fires, hurricanes, and plagues, oh my. How has Texas and your operations weathered the pandemic? Well, it, an interesting year would be putting it mildly. Um, however, I think in the long run, we'll actually look back on 2020 uh, as a good year. Uh, as hard as it is to say that, uh, I feel like this will be the year that we find that we were able to really grow um, and, and find out just how strong we are. Um, so in Texas, uh, we have obviously had trouble just as everyone in the country has, uh, starting in the, the spring with the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, we had a shutdown statewide uh, as well as you know most other states. Um, and that did affect occupancy throughout our, our multifamily properties. We had a little bit of a dip that came in, uh, especially in May and June. Uh, but it's funny, in uh, July and August, we actually came roaring back. And uh, right now, occupancies are as high as they've ever been. That's excellent. Justin, you operate in the suburbs. Has the exodus from the cities played to your advantage for your communities? And is there an uptick from this migration? It's still early to tell, but I think we are starting to see that. Um, the real estate markets uh, in the areas where we are involved, which as you mentioned is mostly in rural Texas and smaller cities, uh, not the major urban areas, uh, have really just gone crazy. The, uh, the single family for sale markets uh, have accelerated. Um, I think there's only like three to four months of inventory available on those markets right now. Uh, and we're feeling that in multifamily rental as well. Uh, because a lot of folks are coming to the area, not able to find a house, not able to find something affordably, uh, they're looking to us to fill that void. And so we have seen some rebound uh, in those areas 
because of folks moving out of the urban areas, getting out to the country, getting away from the mass crowds. You mentioned single family. McDonald began as a single family home builder. Have you considered getting back into single family, maybe in the way of rentals? Well, you're right. We did start uh, in the mid-1950s. My grandparents uh, started our company uh, building custom homes in the Austin, Texas area. Uh, and it sort of grew from there. Uh, we have, along the way, looked at building some single-family for rent uh, properties, and we have built some uh, throughout time. Uh, we still manage a few of those properties now. Um, right now, we're still focused primarily on multifamily uh, and as opposed to single-family, but we are open to looking at some single-family rentals uh, or maybe some sort of different format from the, the standard garden-style walk-ups that we've been doing. Um, you know, maybe more duplexes, fourplexes, townhomes, uh, for rent, for sale. We're, we're exploring those options right now. It's still, like I mentioned earlier, it's a little too early to tell exactly what the long-term implications of the, of the COVID crisis are going to be, but we're definitely ready to uh, be able to pounce on wherever the need arises. So your company operates conventional tax credit home-financed properties. How has their performance differed during the pandemic? Well, the affordable properties, uh, such as the tax credit uh, section 42, as well as the home properties, uh, have really been pretty stable for the most part. Um, because a lot of those folks are essential workers, they never really got shut off. Uh, you know, a lot of those folks work in the grocery stores, work, you know, with the first responders, uh, medical professions, that sort of thing. So uh, they were plowing through and uh, and and never really, uh, frankly, never really had the luxury of, of getting shut down. They had to pin their ears back and go forward. Uh, in some of our market rate properties, we did see a little bit of a fall off. Those are uh, a lot of restaurant workers, um, restaurants, bars, tourism-based industries, uh, which obviously went from, you know, full full throttle to zero almost overnight. Uh, but we are starting to see those crawl back a little bit now. Uh, Texas is, is up to, uh, I think, 75% uh, in restaurants. Bars are still closed, but a lot of other uh, public gathering spaces are getting up to the 50 and 75% range. And uh, frankly, a lot of people are tired of being cooped up in their houses. And so they're getting out into the country to, to visit uh, whether they're allowed to or not, I feel like it's kind of happening. So it, it is putting people back to work in those areas. That's, that's fantastic news. What a contrast to California. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <clears throat> I think I've exhibited great restraint in saving politics for last. Justin, you're the 2020 chair of BuildPAC. For those who aren't familiar, BuildPAC is NEHB's bipartisan group that works to, to elect pro-housing, pro-business candidates to federal positions. This is extremely critical to the ongoing health and well-being of housing in our nation. All roads lead to Capitol Hill. Justin, what are the goals for 2020? Well, as you mentioned, uh, our primary goal is and always has been and always will be to elect pro-housing candidates to the Congress. Uh, we work, um, we stay out of presidential politics, but we work very heavily uh, on both Senate and House races in the Congress uh, to try and get folks elected that we know are going to be pro-housing. And so that goal has not changed. Uh, it's obviously become a little bit more difficult these days 
uh, when we can't uh, meet with people hands-on and, and, uh, and sort of have those interactions that we're used to. But, but we still, uh, at the end of the day, have the same goal of getting those pro-housing candidates elected. In, in 2018, Build Pack contributed nearly $3 million to various races. The average House race costs $1 million, and the average Senate race costs $7 million. Does Build Pack have the resources it needs to make a difference? Absolutely. Uh, thankfully, we had already uh, started this election cycle, which is every two years, uh, ahead of our goals. So... Uh, when COVID hit, we had an, enough of a slush fund or a war chest kind of built up uh, to be able to weather that. Uh, obviously, with the election coming up in, in just a month now, uh, we are spending quite a bit on campaigning uh, and, and uh, contributions to those candidates. Uh, but we definitely do uh, still have enough uh, to, to be able to influence those elections. It is worth noting that PACs do have a maximum amount they can give to each candidate, as do individuals. Uh, so that does help kind of level the playing field a little bit uh, in that regard as well. What would you like to see the next Congress do in order to support housing? Well, there's a number of things the next Congress can do. Uh, first of all, uh, of course, working with uh, our trade partners uh, and with the administration, whoever that administration ends up uh, being under, uh, to work with our country's trade partners to uh, ensure the, the availability of materials such as lumber, such as appliances, metals. Uh, you know, that's a thing that's really been kind of a problem since, uh, especially since COVID, but even before that, uh, of being able to get those materials at an affordable price. Uh, so when that happens, when those materials are either unavailable or available at a high price, of course, those prices then get passed on to the end consumer, which is the either the renter or the home buyer. Uh, and of course, that just makes affordability that much more of a challenge. Uh, so that's definitely something that we'll be looking to Congress to do. Uh, additionally, uh, regulations, energy regulations are a big deal. Uh, the Department of Energy has had a growing influence in the code-making process with the ICC. And so uh, I think we'll be looking at uh, figuring out how we can work with Congress and, again, with the administration to, to try and limit government's role and, and keep them from interfering with the uh, consensus-based processes that we have and with looking at actual science versus just things that sound like good ideas on paper. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it really all comes down to the unintended consequences of the actions that they take. And so, you know, everything that Congress does, uh, we'll be asking them to take a look at through the lens of housing affordability. Uh, and if something, you know, really jacks up the cost of housing and it doesn't create an appreciable benefit to the, to the occupant of that housing, uh, that's, that's not something that we're going to be able to put up with. So I think that's, that's what you'll see a lot of out of us. In addition to looking at regulations, in addition to looking at trade and the cost of materials, uh, one other thing that we really need to focus on uh, this coming congressional session uh, is affordable housing and getting more methods of affordable housing out there. Uh, there's been a bill. Uh, it's been proposed the last couple of sessions. It's gotten really close to being enacted a couple times and then it's just gotten bound up in politics. Uh, but it would basically fix the 4% LIHTC credit uh, at an actual 4% versus the floating uh, applicable rate 
which is currently down around 3.1%, I believe, today. Um, and that would be a huge benefit without a significant amount of, of increase to the federal treasury. Uh, so we're hoping to be able to get that through as well. Uh, we Fantastic. Think that, would, that would be uh, uh, not only uh, increase the affordable housing stock of the nation, uh, but would also be an, an economic development driver uh, to kind of help out of the COVID recession and put people to work. Absolutely. After it's the, safe to leave the house. What is the disposition of that right now? Where is it? Um, well, right now, uh, Congress has been primarily focused on getting continuing resolutions, which I believe I saw they passed uh, yesterday uh, to get through the election. Uh, frankly, everybody in Washington right now is, is thinking about November. They're not thinking about today. Right. So it's, it's really pretty hard to get folks to focus on that. Uh, we did think that it was going to be included in some of the COVID relief packages, uh, because again, as I mentioned, it's it's not only a great way to increase affordable housing, which a lot of people need even more now due to COVID, uh, right. but it's also a great way to create jobs for folks that are building that housing uh, and putting folks back to work. So uh, we hope if there is you know some additional COVID recovery package uh, either later this year or in the beginning of the year at the new Congress, that hopefully that'll be part of that package. Fantastic. We will look for that. Well said. I think the connection of those dots is something that we've been missing, especially in our uh, industry out here on the West Coast. Yeah, well, and it's not just the West Coast. I think it's it's really nationwide, um, you know, even all the way down to the local government level. Uh, we see, you know, local governments passing things like masonry ordinances, uh, passing codes that require compliance above and beyond the accepted energy code. Uh, you know, aesthetic landscaping ordinances. I mean, things that really uh, should not have any bearing on the safety and the efficacy of the shelter of the housing itself. Um, but yeah, sure, it looks nice or it sounds good or whatever. But it's it's going to raise the price to the to the homeowner to the renter, uh, and that's in a crisis that we're in right now with affordability, you know, being on the front burner, we've got to be more careful about those decisions. I, I think that's fantastic. And the guidance that we receive from organizations like NAHB is critical. We were talking before the show about carbon sequestration mm -hmm. and certainly today um, the air quality where I'm sitting in the San Francisco Bay Area, being over 200 is essentially unlivable. But you had mentioned that NAHB foresaw this. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that? Sure. NAHB actually a couple of years ago uh, passed policy uh, encouraging the administration to uh, allow uh, BLM and the Forest Service uh, and the Park Service to, to uh, increase some of their forestry management practices and, and become more active in some of that forestry management uh, to basically thin out those forests that are burning now uh, to either clear out the dead or dying uh, wood that's there uh, and also to be able to, you know, cut fire breaks, thin out. Um, yeah, I don't remember the exact statistics, but there's a, an ideal number of trees per acre uh, in a wildland forest, and a lot of our forests along the West Coast, especially, uh, were well in excess of that amount. And so, 
the problem you've got is, is, you know, back before human settlement, uh, you would have wildfires that would come through periodically and they probably weren't too bad because they just burn a little area and then kind of extinguish itself. And, you know, that would be that. And then it would sort of grow back. But now because we have, uh, you know, population there and we try and kind of actively tamp down those fires as we, you know, need to. Uh, but, but when the fires aren't burning that natural wood out, then some other method has to come in. Uh, so forestry actually, uh, in my opinion, can have a positive effect on sustainability because you keep those entire swaths of forest from then burning down uh, later on if you keep them trimmed up and, and you know, managed. That's fantastic. I would like to get more information on that. Justin, thank you for joining us today. I love hearing stories about family-run businesses, but especially the McDonald's of Kerrville. It's not a far reach to say that the nation is a better place for having the McDonald's as part of its great fabric. Another incredible conversation in the can. Where does the time go? Thank you, Justin McDonald, for all your great work with NAHB, Build Pack, in your communities, and more. You are a great American, creating homes and building communities for this land we all love. I'm Linda Hoffman. Stay tuned for our next episode of NAHB Power Hitters when we speak with Deborah Guerrero, Senior Vice President of Strategic Partnerships and government relationships with the NRP group. See you then.